0: In the world, but not of the world. Jesus is praying for his disciples. He knows the world will try to wipe away his priorities, his commitments. The world will punish those who resist its greed and self-centeredness. The world will claim that violence and entitlement are the right levers of power. Jesus knows it will be hard for his followers to resist the forces of the world. He prays for God to hold them in a holy place a truthful place, a place of heavenly resistance. That was my theme paragraph for this Sunday that I wrote back when I was doing worship planning some time ago. I look back at that paragraph and I realize that in that statement about the text and theme for today, I've offered a very particular, and some might say negative, definition of the world. Jesus knows the world will try to wipe away his priorities, his commitment. The world will punish those who resist its greed and self-centeredness. The world will claim that violence and entitlement are the right levers of power. Jesus knows it will be hard for his followers to resist the forces of the world. In short, the world is bad, corrupt, That's the suggestion in those sentences. Now, if I were to unpack that suggestion a little bit, I would want to say that by world, I don't mean the natural world, the created world, and I don't mean the physical nature of the world. That is, I'm not suggesting that the body is bad while the spirit is good, for example, or that nature is in some way the opponent of humanity. Rather, I think, I hope, I am referencing the world in the way that Jesus references the world. In terms of our collective cultural impulses, most of which are aimed in the direction of preservation of our own tribe, protection of our own interests, seeking comfort and safety for our own kind. Referencing the world in the sense of the historical and systemic impulse toward the use of violence to express our power and to assuage our fears. Referencing the world in the sense that strength, not fairness, seems to be the plumb line along which most people's sense of what is appropriate and desirable is measured. Referencing the world in terms of the more self-centered and brutish elements of human values, priorities, and behaviors. Yes, I'm talking about the world. Maybe you would say I'm talking about the way of the world. Still, maybe it feels like I am unfairly reflecting a negative bias when I use the term world in that way. But if it feels like that to you, think of the news of the day. Why does decency seem so uncommon? Why is politics so much more about opposition than cooperation? Why do so few people ask the question, what is good for my neighbor or what is good for my community and instead focus solely on the question, what is good for me? Now, you can argue with me on this point about whether the world, the way of the world, is good or whether it is bad, but to be convinced in a different direction, I would need to hear your explanation from observation and experience about what makes the world inherently good, safe, trustworthy, and generous. And if you are arguing that the world is inherently good, safe, trustworthy, and generous, don't tell me stories about your family or about your dear friends or your trusted community and don't tell me stories about the odd or unusual person who is heroic or self-giving tell me stories about the goodness of the world about governments that consistently promote equality and fairness about people of one race who are collectively, universally dismantling their systemic advantage over others of other races. Tell me about examples of fairness for all. Tell me about political systems that work for the good of the people and not just the good of the powerful. Can you tell me those stories about the world? And if you want to make the case that the world is inherently good, safe, trustworthy, and generous, don't tell me stories about the beauty of the natural world. I won't deny the goodness of the creation, even when it sometimes rises up to create disaster in flood or drought. Don't tell me how your pets love you and your parents love you and your neighbor looks out for you. I believe those things but I don't believe those are characteristics of the world. If the world was good and decent, if the way of the world was good and decent, we wouldn't be at war. We wouldn't be vilifying each other. We wouldn't be denying basic human rights for others. We wouldn't be denying whatever it takes for us to reach for the good of all people and then justifying that with language of economic concern and control. No, the world, the way of the world, is not friendly to the way of goodness and mercy, to the way of Jesus. So, as Jesus talks about the world, as he prays for his disciples, he prays for protection for them from this difficult and dangerous world. And it is because, as he says, the world has hated them, has hated those who follow the Jesus of full inclusion, who follow the Jesus of love for those on the margins, who follow the Jesus of systemic change for the sake of justice, who follow the Jesus of nonviolence, of non-tribalism, of love not just for family and friends, but love for strangers and even enemies. The world has hated Jesus' followers who follow this path. Protect them from the evil one, Jesus prays. Protect them. Don't take them out of the world, he prays, but protect them from the world when they are in the world. Now, what does that protection from the world mean? Obviously, it isn't a prayer by Jesus that somehow his followers will be armed with weapons of resistance. That's not his way. Instead, his is the way of non-resistance. And it's not a prayer for God to provide for the removal of the disciples from that which threatens them. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, he prays. No, what Jesus is praying for is that his disciples will be able to be in the world, but not of the world. That is, he's not praying for them to be removed from struggle, from conflict, from pain. What he is praying is that their essence will be preserved in the midst of the struggle, the conflict, the pain. That their commitment, their integrity, their Jesus ethic, their values, their identity will endure, will remain, will stay the course in a hostile environment he prays that they, too, won't become hostile. In a violent environment, he prays, too, that they, too, won't become violent. In a me-first environment, he prays that they, too, won't become me-first people. In an environment of prejudice and discrimination, of fear-based rejection of the stranger, of grasping for power at any cost, he prays that they too won't embrace prejudice. They won't be overcome with fear of the stranger. They won't prioritize their own power. He prays that they will be in the world, but not of the world. That they will be people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. That they will be people who solve problems through creative nonviolence. That they will be people who heal the sick and feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the prisoner. All things that Jesus taught by word and example. All things that Jesus prioritized by word and example sanctify them in the truth he prays your word is truth what does that mean what word what truth how about this word this truth love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself how about this word this truth and what does the lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your god And how about this word, this truth? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Jesus prays for his disciples to be rooted, grounded, clear in who they are, in who they are in him, in who they are in the world, so that they can be in the world but not of the world. And what is their protection in this unfriendly, oppositional, challenging, non supportive environment that is the world? What is their protection? It's not armor, it's not a sword, it's not escape, it's not exceptionalism, it's not a pile of guarantees about outcomes, it's not preemptive aggression, it's not tribalism, it's none of those things. What is their protection? It is their life in Christ. It is their identity and their integrity in the way of Christ. It is God's love surrounding them, undergirding them, upholding them, permeating them all the days of their lives. It's knowing who they are, knowing it clearly and continually, and being who they are no matter what comes. Their protection is the preservation of their identity. And their integrity in Christ. They will be in the world, but not of the world. They will belong in the world, but not belong to the world. Now, is such a thing possible? Won't that in the world, but not of the world posture ultimately separate them from the world in which they live? and separate them so much that they will close their eyes and ears to everything around them, thinking only of the spiritual realm, giving up on this world, rejecting those who have rejected them, sliding away from those who do not support them. Certainly there is a danger in trying to live in the world in which you don't really feel like you completely belong, a world whose priorities are different than your priorities, than Jesus' priorities. Safety often seeks separation. Expected rejection invites preemptive disconnection. In fact, early Anabaptists, who took seriously the admonition to be in the world but not of the world, often became very sectarian, very self-separating from culture and communities around them. It just seemed better to be separate. The world is bad. The world is corrupt. Then stay away as much as you can. But I don't think that's what Jesus was intending. I think he wanted his followers to have the integrity of faithful discipleship, but to do it in the very environment that would likely reject it. To stay true but to also keep giving themselves, to keep engaging. My friend David Lose, writing some reflections about this scripture passage, notes that the word giving, or some form of it, shows up over and over in this passage, this prayer, and throughout the Gospel of John. He writes, there's a lot of giving going on in this prayer, and some receiving too, God has given Jesus his disciples, his teaching, the word, and God's name, to name a few. Jesus, in turn, has given these things to his disciples. While one might want to explore the theological dimensions of giving and receiving in John, I'd simply note that one of the dominant characteristics of God in John's gospel is one who delights in giving. I wonder how many of our folks realize this, he continues, not just after a rough year, but in general. I suspect that if you pull a few folks off the street or even out of our pews and ask what they think of God, they'll likely describe something approximating an old man with a white beard sitting up in heaven, looking down in mild disapproval with an outstretched and wagging finger ready to enforce some archaic morality code or scold us for having too much fun. But the God to whom Jesus prays, he writes, looks nothing like this. Rather than a wagging finger of warning, you have arms reaching out in an embrace and an open hand giving all good things. God, according to Jesus, gives and gives and gives some more. Why else come to God in prayer, sharing hopes, concerns, fears, and dreams? God listens, God cares, God gives. David comments, too, that God keeps giving because God isn't yet done with this world. The world is a challenging, at times dark place, he says, but God is not done yet. And if this is true, if God keeps giving, keeps engaging because God isn't done yet, isn't done with the potential and the power of transforming love, of hope, of restoration and reconciliation, then we aren't either. We aren't done yet. Even if the world, the way of the world, isn't one that is accepting of Jesus' priorities, of Jesus' ethic, we still have a mission of being leaven in the loaf, yeast, salt, a light. If God isn't done with this world yet, then we aren't either. We are called to be in the world, but different from the world. We are called to be examples of hope and compassion. We are called to be agents of justice and peace. We are called to be vessels of transformative love. We are called to a different way of living. And we are called to all of this as we are in the world, engaged with the world, but not consumed by the world. Why? Why be in but not of? Why live in that tension? Why hold open that space? Why resist and at the same time engage? Why give and give, even if that giving might not be well-received or welcomed? Why resist the world and offer our love to it anyway? Because that's the transformative, grace-filled, hopeful, restorative, Way of Jesus. And we are trying to walk in the way of Jesus. We are trying to walk in the way of Jesus in this difficult world. We are trying to walk in the way of Jesus in this difficult world because God has not given up on this world. We are trying to walk in the way of Jesus in this difficult world because the God of grace has not given up on this world and we won't either. We may not belong to this world, but we belong in this world. And our work, our way, is supported by the enduring love of Jesus. Jesus prays for us, for our endurance, for our faithfulness, for our courage, for our integrity. Jesus prays for us, Amen.